0: Almost finished with our spring series in the Song of Songs, so if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Someone would love to bring you a Bible. We are going to be in chapter 7 and a little bit in chapter 8. This is the chapter I haven't wanted to preach. Happy Father's Day to us all. I don't know if I came up with this or if uh, I stole it. Um, Most of my ideas, to some capacity, I stole or plagiarized. But um, our desires very much are like fire, I think. It's a perfect app kind of description. Desires are like fire. They can be used for great good, or they can cause great harm. We all have desires. In one sense, it's just really, really natural. We all desire to eat and to have good meals and food. We desire friendship and companionship. We desire pleasure over pain. We have all of these desires and desires are natural. They're just part of what it means to be human. We desire to live in a world where justice is prized and evil is shunned. And yet sometimes desires can overtake us in such a way and can overtake our heart to such an extent that not only can they be used for good, sometimes desires can enslave us, desires can undo us. The late Christian counselor David Powelson, who founded CCEF back in Philadelphia, he spoke a lot about this. And he talked about the the power of desire in all of our lives and how desire can be good. And often when we think of desire, we think of pursuing evil desires. But really, for most people, our problem isn't that we, you know, really pursue evil desire. It's that we pursue good desire, but in inordinate ways. That was his phrase, that we have inordinate desires. We have good desires, but they are not ordered correctly. We desire good things, but we desire them too much. They are outsized. They've become inordinate in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls. And what they do is, eventually, they either turn on us, they fail us, or, at best, all desires just leave us wanting more and more and more. That's how desires work. You get something, you pursue something, you get it, but then it's like that, that itch that you just have to keep scratching. This spring, we've been going through the Song of Songs, which is a book all about desire. Specifically, it's about the desire for marital love. And even more specifically, it is in this chapter, the pursuit of and the desire for physical Desire within the physical bounds of marriage between a physical man and a physical woman. And this book, this author, and this chapter is all about desire. It's about desire. And we've learned time and time again that desire is a gift, and pleasure is a gift, and love is a gift, and physical intimacy within the bounds of marriage is a gift. God has given this as a gift to us. And yet, those desires can sometimes become inordinate. Sometimes those desires can become too big in our lives. And sometimes those desires can just leave us longing for something more. And I'm going to try to convince you all that that's the point. That's the purpose. That is what desire is meant to do theologically. It's meant to push us to desire something greater than the pleasure itself, than the desire itself. So that's the big idea. Simply this. Our desires make us long for more. And I want to unpack this in kind of three movements. I want to look at desires pursued. we we'll are going to see that in verse 1 to 9. Then desires enjoyed, verses 10 to 13. And then desires found wanting in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 8. So. Let's go to God's word and read the first nine verses. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter! Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twin, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in heshbon by the gate of Bath-Rabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Your head, your head crowns you like caramel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in your tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O oh loved one, with all your delights. Your statue is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. O, oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine." And the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. Then she speaks. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. We'll stop there. So first, desire pursued. The man in this poem begins to speak in verse 1. We see that. And like he did in chapter 4 and chapter 6, he begins to describe this woman and how beautiful she is and how enamored he is with her. Only this time it's in reverse order. He doesn't stop down and go, he doesn't start at the top and go down. He starts at the bottom and goes up. And he, it's pretty clear, you don't have to be a Hebrew scholar. You don't have to be really good at po- poetry to realize what is going on. He is enamored with her beauty. He is, as it were, undone by her beauty. She is, as verse uh, 2 says, um, or v- verse 1 says, she is crafted, you know, by the gods. She is, she is crafted by a master craftsman, God himself. And this whole, this whole uh, description in verses 1 to verse 6 is bracketed by this word beautiful. She is exceedingly beautiful. But sometimes describing beauty is hard, right? Like if we all went to the Grand Canyon and I said, "Okay, you've got 20 words to describe that feeling, that that sense of awe that you're experiencing when you look at the Grand Canyon." You'd go 20 words? That's that's hard, right? Or if I said, "Okay, you just had it's Father's Day, so you know, you just had you just had your first child and you're holding fathers, you're holding your son or daughter for the first time, you've got 30 words to describe that feeling." That that sense of draw, um, dread and excitement and 30 words, like that's hard to do. And so what we do in those moments where we are kind of paralyzed uh, with a lack of an understanding of how we could just articulate these feelings, these emotions, this, this sense of wonder and awe. And so what we do is we take similar kind of ideas or similar experiences or, or similar uh, kind of objects and then we apply them to these others that, that that that's how poetry works that's how language works and that's what our author does here we we get so fixated on the body parts but i don't want to think about the body parts i want to think about the description of what the author does with those body parts as he describes her and what he does is he reaches for two different images to describe the beauty of his wife and the first is he grabs and thinks about and applies the Garden of Eden to her. We see that in the first few verses. So he says, he says, jewels, wine, wheat, flowers, animals, galloping in the garden, right? All these are images evocative of either the promised land or the garden of Eden. And we've seen this before. I pointed this out again. This is kind of his favorite thing to do. This is his favorite description of her, is to reach back to the Garden of Eden and say, You are as beautiful as As Eve was in the garden before there was any sin, before there was any brokenness, before the curse entered the story. So when he thinks of her, when he looks on her, when he's thinking about his experience of his wife, he thinks Garden of Eden. He thinks paradise before paradise was lost. It's beautiful. But then the imagery shifts in verse 4. And no longer is he kind of, kind of applying the Garden of Eden to his wife. Now he uses this royal language. See that? Tower, gate, crown, purple, king. It's royal language. It's no longer just the Garden of Eden. It's princess language. She is a princess. She is of royal birth. She is exclusive. And just, just play with the... Just, Play with the poetry for a second when you think about it. I mean, just think about what a princess is. Just think about how, uh, how exclusive a princess is. N- not everyone's a princess. There's only a few of them. And there's only a few that maybe aren't married. Just think of the desire of all the men who would just, you know, count it a, a grand blessing to marry a princess and all of its blessings. It's exclusive. The, a princess is set apart. She's Royal, the the rules in one sense don't apply to her. And so the sort of strong desire that any of us would have to be married to someone of royal blood, he says, that's what it's like to be married to you. It's as if he were saying, I I bow to the beauty of your royalty. But then in verse 7, it's clear that he's not just delighting in looking at her, he is delighting in wanting to experience her or lay hold of her. That's kind of the language. And so he describes her as a palm tree, and it's clear in verses 7 to 9 what he wants. I don't have to paint it for you. I don't need to be very specific. You know what his desire is. He doesn't want to just look at her beauty. He wants to touch her, hold her, kiss her. He wants to be physically intimate with his wife. And then in verse 9, she finally speaks in all this. And... I'm guessing, like I was throughout the week, she's probably blushing a little bit. She speaks and then summarizes exactly what's going on and exactly the desires that she now doesn't just assume he has, but have become explicit, and she says this. She says, it it goes down smoothly for my beloved. She's speaking of their love, gliding over lips and teeth, and then we read of this. I am my beloved's. And his desire is for me. His desire is for me. That word desire, it's a really strange word. It's actually a really rare word in the Hebrew Old Testament. And it only comes up three times in the Bible. And the other two instances, one here and the other two, are a lot earlier in the book of Genesis. So right after sin enters the world, the first time, right after the fall, God speaks about the curse that's going to come as a result of their sin, and God speaks to the woman, and we read this, Genesis 3.16. I will surely multiply your pains in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And then God says this, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Genesis 3.16. And then if you flip over one chapter later in chapter 4, Cain and Abel bring sacrifices to God, and Cain's angry because, you know, God accepted Abel's and not Cain's. And so then God speaks to Cain and says this, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. And then God says this, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So in both cases, desire is described in its negative context. It's described as fire. We know how the story of Cain and Abel go, right? Cain eventually gets so mad that he murders his brother. Desire, as it were, wasn't just crouching at the door. It overtook him. It ruled him. It overcame him. And he then fell prey to that, and he murdered his brother. This is how desires can work, can't they? Um, maybe you might remember the director and actor Woody Allen. He began a relationship and then eventually married his adopted daughter. True story. Well, when asked about it, he famously said this The heart wants what it wants. Now, we can sort of like laugh at this or kind of be uh, kind of taken aback by this, but in all honesty, that is how desires can work. The heart wants what the heart wants. Just ask Cain, just ask Alan. I mean, even good desires can start off good and then they can easily morph into something else. Right now I'm listening to a, a history of John D. Rockefeller, the infamously wealthy, probably the most wealthy American that's ever lived. I think that's right. But he started off at 15 and he got a job and he just needed to make Good money because his dad basically left the family. And so at 15, he got a job. He was, a, um, he was a, kind of an accountant of sorts. He gets a job and he just starts making money. He realized, I need to make more money to provide for my family. All of those are great and good and godly desires to provide for his family, to provide for his siblings, to provide for his mom. And yet, the more and more money he got, the more and more he started making ruthless deals in order to accumulate more and more wealth. So what started off as a good desire became an all-encompassing desire and eventually, in many ways, burned him. Desires crouch at all of our door. That's how desires work. Or as the church father said, Augustine, he, he, he describes it this way. He says that all of us have loves, and our biggest problem when we think about it is that we have disordered loves. We order our loves wrongly. We, we, we love things that we ought to love, but we love them in the wrong order. That's our problem. We have a disordered love, or to quote Pallison, we have inordinate loves. And yet this is the really peculiar thing about the Song of Songs, because the the song comes to us, which is the greatest song dedicated to the greatness of love, and there is no hint of disordered desire. That's the bizarre thing. The the other two verses in Genesis 3 and Genesis 4 all talk about desire and its negative and its its inordinate kind of uh, context, but here it's properly ordered and there's no hint of wrong. It's naked and ashamed. It's gloriously beautiful. It's in its proper context. There is no hint of Wrongdoing, this is ordered love. He affirms love, his love for her. She affirms his love for her. And it's beautiful. She says, I am my beloveds. As one author put it, desire in the Song of Songs, it's as if it's been rescued from the fall and now reordered. And I think... In many ways, that's why we come back to this song over and over again, because this song is a reprieve from all the ways in which we have disordered our desires, all the ways in which we haven't properly put our love of God, and we put other things over our love of God. We have reordered things in our lives, and it, has a man- it manifests itself in lots of different ways. And ultimately, when we do this, it Burns us. I mean, fathers, it's, and and mothers can apply this, or or friends can apply this in the same way, but fathers, it's good to want your kids to succeed, to be ambitious for them. But if you are too ambitious for them, you can crush them under your ambition. So even the good idea of wanting them to succeed and, and having ambition for them can eventually turn on them. But if we orient our desires rightly according to God's word, and in that sense, if, if you have the right sort of ambition for your children that's not too high or too low, it's like the Goldilocks principle, isn't it? Well, then when your children fail or when they succeed, you won't be puffed up in pride. Um, I, I'm, I'm reading a, a book right now, um, and the subtitle is How to Rescue Youth Sports from Parents. And it's how parents are ruining youth sports. And she writes about in the introduction how um, she's watching her 11-year-old son play basketball and he's succeeding. He's like the best player on the court. And she hears another parent say, man, that kid's good. And she just has this well of pride that's like just, you know, increasing. Look how great I I am, because that's my son. And so she goes home and then she just has... Instantly shame, like, why did I get so much esteem for my son's success in the past? And she's, like, wrestling with this. Well, she had, in that sense, disordered her loves. And if you're like, well, how do we then order our loves rightly? How do we then make sure that we, like this positive example, we have desires that don't become inordinate? Well, we just got to keep reading. Verse Ten. So go with me to verse 10. So we had desires pursued, now we have desires enjoyed. Starting in verse 11. "'Come, my beloved, let us go into the fields and lodge in the villages.'" Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grapes blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. So she begins to sing again that his desire can now be awakened. And so she calls to him and says, let's, let's get away, right? Let's get away to the field. Let's, let, let's, let's just go on a, a honeymoon. Let's, let's go on an on a anniversary trip. Let's just get away from all of this, from, from, the, from the public, and let's privately enjoy the embrace of each other. And so we have this image of vineyards and fruit, which are like, how does this work? Well, it's pretty simple, right? It's basically this, their love is ripe. That's what he's basically saying in verses 11 to 13, that time is right, their love is ripe. It's time to enjoy the fruit of their romance. So they've been pursuing this, and it's time now to enjoy this. Verse 12, she, she doesn't want to waste any time, right? It's morning, she's like, the time's right right now, and so they want to, they want to get a hotel room. They, they want to go out somewhere private where the mood is right because their love is ripe. Right. And then verse 13 ends with this very intense poetry. There's a lot of double entendres, and I'm not going to point any of them out to you. But what he did for her in wooing her with his words, now she does, just not with words. This is a song, and this is why it's so beautiful. It is a song of mutual delight. It is a duet sung by a man and woman who equally love and pursue each other. Which is, I think, one of the reasons why we come back to this song over and over and over again. Because it is such a beautiful portrayal of mutual service, sacrifice, initiation, pursuit. It is a beautiful thing. Um... I've been listening to this song sort of on repeat um, and it's a folk song and it begins with this man it's, it I think perfectly sums up the song of song but it, it starts off with this man singing about all of his imperfections like he's, you know, his, he's balding um, he's gaining weight and so he starts just listing off all his imperfections all of his insecurities and then he sings this refrain but she loves me and then he asks the question, but why does she love me because she could have anyone else? That's the refrain. That's the question. And it just lingers in the air in this song. And then eventually she sings and she lists off all of her insecurities and weaknesses. She's, she's always late. She just lost her cell phone. She's just listing all of her insecurities. And then she sings the refrain back. But he loves me. Why does he love me when he could have anyone else? And then there's sort of a pause in this Song is a kind of building, and then eventually they both sing together in this beautiful harmony. And they sing, baby, the best part of me is you. Lately, everything makes sense to. I'm so in love with you. They sing this love song back and forth to each other. That's what's going on here. What makes this song so beautiful, what makes this song, the song of songs, is that the man and the woman equally are singing this song To one another. In this beautiful. Harmonic. Duet. There's a. We could put it this way. There's a beautiful other centerness to their love. He gazes at her. She gazes at him. He sings. She sings. He initiates. She initiates. He sacrifices. She sacrifices. He pursues. She pursues. He gives. She gives. Neither of them are selfish. This is a, a song of radical other-centeredness, and that's why it's so beautiful. It's, it's a song of self-sacrifice. Neither really talks about themselves or their needs. I mean, a lot of times we talk about uh, what, what, what your marriage needs. You need to be more clear about your needs, which has its part and can be good, but ultimately what's makes This so beautiful is that neither of them are really cared about their needs. They're just pursuing the other person and getting the pleasure of pursuing the other person. And as they do that, the other person then pursues them. And it's a celebration of this mutual other-centeredness in their marriage. I have a daughter and sons, and I've realized something that's not going to be shocking to any of you, but that boys and girls are different, okay? And I've been married to a woman for almost 16 years, and I've realized that my wife thinks differently than I do in a lot of different ways. And yet, though there are days in which I want, I just wish it'd be so much easier if my wife just thought like me. Life would just become so much easier. And yet, it's the differentness of my wife that makes marriage all the more beautiful, because I have to think like her. I have to pursue her in ways that don't come natural to me. I have to reorient my mind in order to think, like, oh, how can I love? Not, not what's best for me, but how could I best pursue her in ways that she would be most receptive? That's the beauty. That, what, that's what makes this so glorious because though differences can, can create friction in marriage, the true glory and beauty of marriage when it's pursued in other centeredness, that's the good stuff. That's what makes this poetic scene so intense. They both give each other and all each other in their love and their sacrifice. They give one another to each other and hold nothing back. And so, really, what we do is in chapter seven, we end on this high note. And uh, just to kind of get this high note, because I'm going to ruin the high note in a second, okay? Or I think the, the author does. So, but I want to build up the high note, because then I'm going to kind of keep it crashing down like a roller coaster, okay? But really, the, the, chapter 7 is this high note, and I want to point it out. And so when I was preparing to preach this, this was about six months ago, and I was trying to figure out the poetry and how it works in um, our days um, and kind of what are the images doing, and I paraphrased the entire book. And so let me just summarize and read the Stephen unauthorized version of Song of Songs, chapter 7, verses 12 to 13. This is the high point of this section, and let me just read my paraphrase of what's going on. So she sings, let's not wait too long. Let's see if we can get away in private. Let's see if the mood is right, if pleasure is ripened to its full, for there I will give you all of me, the fullness of my being. And the power to seduce will ripen, and the door to me will open wide, and you will get all of me from head to toe. There is not a hidden treasure, it's all yours, my love. It's a high point. Just a, a poetic. He, he songs, sung of the beauty of her, and now he, she is now singing of the beauty of him and the beauty of their love. But in chapter eight, everything shifts. So desires have been pursued, desire has been enjoyed, and you'd think, well, this is great. Like, you know, fairy tale ending, that's it. That's the point. Desire has its end in just the desire itself, but in chapter 8, verse 1, we see that desires ultimately are found wanting. Go go there with me. Verse 1, we're just going to look at the first four verses. We read, Oh, that you were like a brother to me, who nursed at my brother's breasts. Sorry, my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you, and none would disabise me. I would head you, I would lead you, and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. So the woman is now speaking, and she announces her wish. It's her dream—it's her fantasy—that not only would this man be her husband, but her brother. That's weird, right? That's really, really weird. That's like a Jerry Springer episode. That's like a hillbilly reality or nightmare, depending upon your perspective. Like, if my wife ever said that to me, I mean, well, she wouldn't say that to me. <laughs> or one of us would be on the couch, right? It's weird. Why in the world does she long for him to be her brother? Well, just keep reading, right? You don't need to know much about the ancient Near East, but we'll kind of explain it because verse 1 and 2 tell us why it is that she so wants him to be her brother. Because if he were her brother, she could kiss him publicly. She could interact with him with more frequency. And it wouldn't be culturally or socially taboo. You see, in the ancient Near East, if a husband and wife went, were out and they were displaying, you know, public displays of affection, that was seen as socially taboo. I think that should still be socially taboo, but that's just me. That's my preference. But in that culture, a you, you, uh, husband and wife, you know, they, they would walk separately. They, they couldn't show affection publicly. But a brother and a sister could. They could hold hands. They could, they could hug. They, they could do those sorts of things. And so what she's basically saying is, I just... Wish that I could display our private love more publicly. I wish that it was I was like a brother to you, not in its creepy way, but in its in its sense in which I could then display our love more publicly. She could walk in the streets and hold their hand, hold his hand. And so that's basically what she's saying. She she longs for more. She just has this amazing rendezvous. She just has this great like date night where they got away and stayed at the post hotel. I mean, she, you know, they had this great experience and she still wants more. She longs for more. She desires more. It's not enough to just have him as her husband. She longs for him to also be metaphorically speaking her brother. She wants what's private to become public. Or verse 13, she, she wants to be able to cuddle more with her husband. And in one sense, it's cute. But in another sense, it's just a refrain and a reminder that whatever she has and the goodness of the desire and the goodness of the pleasure and the amazingness of their marriage, in and of itself, it is not enough. The theme of pleasure and joy and the goodness of it still leaves her, and we could substitute also him, wanting more. All desires, even good desires, leave us wanting more. Just think about it. The best meal you've ever had, that, the best steak, the best trimmings, the best salmon, the best halibut, whatever your, your thing is, the best food you've ever eaten, my guess is you didn't finish that meal and go, great, I never have to eat good food again. I could just eat bad food. That's not how desires work, right? Right? You ate that food and now you can kind of still taste that food and you still want more good food. That's how desires work. You go on a great date and you want to go on another great date, right? You go fishing, you catch that huge fish and what do you want to do? You want to go fishing again and catch an even bigger fish. This is how desires work. We perpetually want more. We're never satisfied. We're like Angelica Schuyler, never been satisfied. Some of you know what that's from. That's how desires work. And I think that's the point. Desires functionally are meant to point us to something greater, or we could put it this way, they're meant to push us and point us purposely to someone greater. In the Lord of the Rings, there is a long-awaited king, Aragon. And year after year, he fights battle after battle, and only after a lot of sacrifice, a lot of battles, a lot of hardship, a lot of suffering, only finally can he marry the woman of his dreams. She is described in the book, his, this, this wife, this, this woman, this princess, this elf, she is described in Edenic-like description. Her beauty has no rival. And he's described in this amazing way. He is the king that everyone has always dreamed of that would sit on the throne of man. And only after evil is finally conquered and destroyed, then and only then can he finally marry the woman he's always dreamed of marrying, the bride that he's always longed to marry. And in this story, Lord of the Rings, we take the whole, you know, 50,000-page story. They live happily ever after. That's how the story ends. And Tolkien writes in there that when people see the splendor of their marriage, he says this. He describes just common people seeing this married between the king and the queen. He says, when people glimpse it, it is, of a, it is gl- a glimpse of glory undimmed before the breaking of the world. So seeing this couple, that the king and the queen in the Lord of the Rings, is like seeing Adam and Eve before the fall. Seeing them is like seeing the character in the Song of Songs, the man and the woman. The world loves this story. In many ways, I think the world loves this story because we all long for that happy ending. But let me tell you one reason why I think... We really do love this story. And it's Tolkien's answer. So once Tolkien wrote a letter answering why he described the king and the queen and why there was a fairy tale ending for the king and the queen. And Tolkien said this. He he said the reason why he used such evocative language to describe their love and their happiness was to, quote, awaken our longing for return in majesty of the true king. Throughout the story, he writes about this love story because his point and purpose is that he wants to awaken in the reader that there will be an even greater king who will come and marry an even greater bride. This is why I think J.K. Rawlings gets the Harry Potter series all wrong. Harry Potter should have married Hermione, because that's what our hearts always long for. It's weird. This is how fairy tales work. We want a happily ever after, and we want the, the, the star guy and the star girl to marry. This is what our hearts yearn for. And this is what we get in the Lord of the Rings. It points us to a greater love story. And that's the purpose and point of the Song of Songs. It's meant to point us purposely to a greater love story. It leaves us unsatisfied because we were meant not to find our ultimate fulfillment in and ultimate purpose in Even our great marriage. As good as marriage is, as blessed as marriage is, as pleasurable as marriage can be, they are not an end in and of themselves. They are purposely pointing to a greater story, a greater marriage itself. That's the point and purpose of the Song of Songs. It is to point us to the joy and love and affection that you can find in Jesus Christ himself. It's meant to awaken in us a desire that can never be fulfilled in our marriages or in any desire or in any pleasure at all. Tim Keller uh, would often say that, um, really when you think about it, God is trapped in the worst marriage ever. Isn't that the story of all of us? And yet, though he's trapped in a marriage with God's people, in that sense, he doesn't forsake her. God in Christ keeps pursuing us to the extent that Jesus died in our place, rose in victory, and captured the heart of his bride from now into eternity. And when he returns, he's going to make all things new, including whatever desire you have unfulfilled, whatever pleasure you've experienced, but you just want more. That desire itself, that dissatisfaction that you have in this world, when he returns, when he makes all things new, we will forever and ever be satisfied. And I think that's why this section ends the way it does, with desires found wanting. The poem in general is really, really optimistic, but at the same time, it's realistic. And so we have this hint of dissatisfaction because human marriage and love, as good as it is, within its ethical and biblical bounds, it's meant to be Enjoyed, yes. It's meant to be pursued, but it's never meant to be worshipped. Instead, our, our marriage's pleasure in general is meant to be like rungs on a ladder that eventually can rise to heaven itself. I'll end with this. The Puritan, Richard Seebs, he wrote a commentary on the Song of Songs, and in the preface of that original kind of, they were eventually, they were first sermons, but they were put together, and this man wrote a forward to it a few decades after, and this is what he wrote about this book, and I think Thebes gets the Song of Songs exactly right. He said that the Song of Songs written and the commentary of Thebes is so full of heavenly treasure and such lively expressions of the invaluable riches of the love of Christ that it serves to rekindle in the heart of in all its readers, a heavenly affection unto Jesus Christ. That is the purpose and point of the Song of Songs. It's meant to awaken in us, to rekindle in us an affection that can only be found in Jesus Christ. Whether you're married or single, you can use this book to find the satisfaction that you've always dreamed of and find it in Jesus Christ. All pleasure are rungs, on a ladder that can eventually find their way to God. And that's how this section ends. So I'll end there too. Lord, we we thank you, Lord, that in all the ways that we are dissatisfied in this life, in all our weaknesses, or whether it's because of our sin, we thank you that you can, we can, time and time again, run to you and find our, our hearts that have been prone to wander. That they can find their, their hope in you, that they can find their rest in you, and that we can be satisfied in you, knowing that you'll never leave us or forsake us, knowing that you love us, you love us to hell and back. And so we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We pray, Lord, that you would build us up in your word, through your spirit. Make us people that are so awakened to Jesus Christ. Make us people who are so heavenly minded that we are earthly good. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.